0: Let's pray. God, this morning, before I I ask for a few specifics regarding these next few minutes, I want to pray for, we want to pray for another church in our community. I want to pray for Vansicle Baptist Church. I want to pray for Roger and Judy Ratcliffe. Uh, We are, um, received news this week that Judy has, uh, the doctors have given her four months to live, and... um, so we want to grieve with our brothers and sisters who are um, dealing with that terrible news, uh, with Roger, uh, with family members, with a, a church family, uh, at Van Sickle, um, or we just want to ask you to give them a peace that passes understanding, uh, give them a joy um, in a life well-lived and um, a long marriage gratitude and having a a heads up that they have that she has four months Um, what a treat to know that your days are numbered and to live that way and to have some sense of when they may be coming to a close Um, lord we pray they make the most of the time and that they enjoy you in the time they have left together lord we do share the obvious desire of our heart in getting that kind of news that we can lift up Judy, with Van Sickle, that you would just surprise us all and just heal her. We know that you're capable, you're able, but we also know that our days are, in fact, numbered, and since the fall, um, that that's what's in store for each of us. Um, but Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified through these next few months, days, um, through this life well lived, through a marriage that's been on display through a long, long ministry at Van Sickle, Lord, we are thankful to have the chance to lift them up this morning. And pray that whatever way that we may have uh, a sense or an opportunity that we can come alongside them, in addition to prayer this morning, that we will lift them up regularly, Roger and Judy. Um, and that whatever other way we could come alongside them, to minister to them, care for them, that we would be faithful to do that. Lord, regarding our next few minutes, I want to pray for, um, I just, uh, just that we can just enjoy this surprising news. I pray it will be a surprise this morning. I pray that we'll see it as beautiful, uh, that we'll cherish it together, that we'll have even a sense of humor about the stewards that you've called steward this gospel together that we can just enjoy you in these next few minutes and your design we love you Lord it's in Christ's name we pray amen turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 3 the last few weeks I guess it's been three Sundays we spent I think it's three in Ephesians chapter two, verses eleven through twenty-two, and this morning we're moving on to chapter three, but it's related to where we've been these last few weeks. CrossPoint began 13 years ago. Christy and I were um, about that close to taking a position at a church in Fort Worth as a uh, staff member and minister to singles, and um, Sam Douglas, a pastor of a church here in town, reached out to me and asked me to to come take a look at this opportunity. Uh, He let me know there was a mission church here in town, a mission of Ridgecrest Baptist Church that was starting effectively, starting a new church uh, through this mission that there were were hopes that this mission church would eventually be solely constituted on their own and a standalone body. so we came to Greenbull, Christy and I came to Greenbull. We brought our video camera in case uh, Daniel was born on the way. Christy's funny. She's like, We don't need hot water or rags, just bring the video camera. That's video catastrophe, is what it would have been. But um, I guess she was concerned if we got stuck in traffic that we could at least record the event. But Daniel was uh, close to being born. We, uh, we came out and spent the day with Sam. And drove a little bit around Greenville and found a church nearly on every corner. Uh, I don't know if many of you are businessmen or women, but you may be able to imagine what it would be like if you were, for example, going to start a cleaners or a grocery store and you drove into a town that is a prospective place to do that and you found dry cleaners on every corner or grocery stores on every corner, you probably would keep looking for a place to do that. It's just not wise business sense. thankfully this isn't a business, but there is at least the thought, what in the world are we going to do in Greenville? This community is saturated with churches and good churches. We're not talking about some sort of um, epidemic, uh, weak, uh, weakness in local churches. We're talking about a A community that is full of churches. We got on the Chamber of Commerce website and found that there were 98 Christian churches listed on the Chamber of Commerce website, Christian churches, as of um, 2003, 2004. I don't know how many are on there now, but we really asked the question then, what in the world are you doing? Why would you call us to this community? And in times in the past 13, 14 years as we've served together, we've had little glimpses into what in the world he's up to. Why in the world he would make us 99? What would we bring as a church to this community that the other 98 may not be bringing? And I don't mean that in a derogatory way, but in a way trying to make sense of what is our purpose here? I think the last few weeks have, for me, brought focus to that question. We've had moments of clarity. But the last three weeks, if you've been paying attention the last three weeks... Or if you haven't been here, you have the opportunity to go listen online. We've been dealing with what we call the second half of the gospel. The first half of the gospel is so beautifully captured in the first 10 verses of chapter 2 in Ephesians. Where God has reconciled man to himself through the work of Christ. He's made us alive together with Christ. He's raised us with Christ. And he's seated us with Christ in heavenly places. We considered union with Christ, and what that means is that union with Him by faith means that we are raised with Him. We participate in what He has accomplished. He's the worker, but we are benef- benefactors in that. The, the first 10 verses of, of Ephesians have been my dearest passages for most of my Christian life. Well, the next 11 through 22 is where we realize that's the second half of the gospel. Because what takes place in verses 11 through 22 is a reconciliation between Cain and Abel. See, just as much as the world has needed a solution to our problem of being crossways with our creator, no longer walking with him in the cool of the day in the garden, we need a solution to the human problem of brother and brother wanting to kill one another. And that's what we've enjoyed these last few weeks is the second half of the good news. That's just as much good news as the first half. That not only has He reconciled us with our Creator, that those who are united to Christ are reconciled with one another. I think the purpose, the reason God has called us to Greenville, the reason He started Crosspoint Fellowship in Greenville, is that we can hopefully lovingly, gently, in a way that's respectful, bring the rest of the gospel into the conversation in Greenville whether it's with people we work with or whether it's people we serve alongside it's a way that we are to be uh, I think our purpose is to bring that into the conversation to celebrate that to walk in it as a people to enjoy that in our community and to maybe bring that into our corporate church conversation and to our message that we have to Greenville I need purpose. I don't know if you need purpose, but I need it. So these last few weeks have been good for me to bring into focus in some ways. Why are we here? This morning's message is going to deal with that even further. This morning's message is going to deal with the stewardship of this crazy, horizontal good news. First of all, who is the steward? The irony of the steward's that we should all have a sense of humor about who he's called to be stewards of that thing, and then what we can expect in being stewards of that good news. So we're going to climb into chapter 3. We're going to look at 13 whole verses this morning. It's a big chunk for us to tackle, but it's not going to be a big chunk sermon-wise. It's just you'll understand how it stands alone, these, these 13 verses. So let me read them together in one reading, and then we're going to spend a few minutes sort of breaking it down into three chunks. which is your glory. Now first of all, let me give you a little sense of structure of what's going on in these 13 verses, and then we're going to climb into them and break them down into three pieces. We're going to deal with them in three chunks. First of all, starting in verse 1, Paul is about to explain what he's praying, he's about to share what he's praying for the Gentiles in Ephesus, or what he's praying for the church there. Okay? But then he takes he digresses If you read it with me, look at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And then he digresses for 13 verses. And then he resumes his train of thought in verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So Clint said, it's funny, Paul kind of had like ADD or something. He's like, it just goes off on a little tangent. This is a 13 verse tangent. A 13-verse digression where Paul talks about his ministry. It's one of the most personal moments in any of the epistles where Paul shares, this is what my ministry is like, this is what it's about. In Greek, it's 189-word sentence, one sentence. In English, it's broken down, at least in our translation, into sentences, but it's 262 words long in English. That's a big, long sentence, and it's one that could be really hard to make sense of, although I think we've, have, we've broken it down in a way that will make very easy, simple sense this morning. In verse 1, Paul tells us that he is a prisoner. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, he's not speaking figuratively, he's speaking really. He is a prisoner chained to a Roman guard when he writes these words to the church at Ephesus. He's not talking about he's just kind of going through a hard time. He actually is a prisoner, chained, poor guard is my thought, poor guard. And he's writing to the Ephesian church about his ministry. Now, the three sections that we're going to look at are the way we're going to break this down in verses 2 through 6, surprise grace. Verses 7 through 12, surprising stewards, plural. And then verse 13 Surprise, suffering. So if you're a note taker, that'll give you kind of a plan for how we're going to spend the morning. Verses 2 through 6, surprise, grace. Verses 7 through through 12, surprise, stewards, plural. And verse 13, surprise, suffering. Now let me invite you, if you're a visitor with us us this morning and you haven't visited before, um, I want to invite you to grab a Bible underneath your seat back. Uh, It will help you, first of all, stay awake. Okay, I mean, it will, because if you're looking and doing something, you actually will be engaging something, but you'll, you'll be inviting another sense into this thing. If you're just listening, then it's easier to get distracted, but if you're looking as well, you'll see that I'm not giving a talky talk. I'm exposing this word, this Bible, okay? So I invite you to grab one if you, if you don't do that traditionally, grab one this morning. Just indulge me. I won't embarrass you if you're not holding on it, but I want to invite you to do that. First of all, we'll deal with the first six verses, surprise grace. I'm going to read these verses again, and we're going to unpack them. I'm going to expose them, and then we're going to connect to what's really being said here. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. Into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are three things. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. I want to unpack and expose these six verses. First of all, Paul was given a ministry that he called the stewardship of grace. That's how he referred to it. He, if Paul were to summarize what is my, my ministry, what's, what's it about? It's about distributing and administering grace. Let me define grace for you. It's a word that you likely hear all the time if you're a church, regular church goer, but it may not be one that you've ever really heard defined. There are two two ways grace is administered, and these two definitions will help you because they're both used in this passage. Okay, here's the first definition. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor in provision of salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. Grace is God's unmerited and undeserved favor in provision of salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. Here's the second definition. And these are both used in this passage, and I'll help you distinguish between how he's using it. The second definition, God's unmerited and undeserved favor, starts out the same way. In the enabling power for the believer in performing the task that God gives him or her. God's unmerited and undeserved favor in the enabling power for the believer in performing the task that God gives him or her. Now, we'll come back to grace. Grace. You'll see here in a moment how this thing is shaping up. But let me introduce you to the thought that Paul uses grace and mystery interchangeably in these first six verses. They're the same in many ways. They're not the same in every passage you ever read in the Bible. But in this context, he's using grace and mystery interchangeably. Look at verse 2 and 3. Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you... How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Grace and mystery are used interchangeably in this passage. Now look at verses 4 and 5. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Now we're going to get at some sense of what he's saying here in mystery. i He's using grace and mystery interchangeably, but now you're going to get a sense of what he's talking about in this mystery. This mystery thing was unclear for most of the world and time leading up to this moment. Leading up to when Paul is writing this letter mystery has been very unclear until the apostles and prophets of the church are revealing it and exposing it. What they're demonstrating there and showing is something called progressive revelation. See, Abraham didn't have a full sense of what God was talking about when he promised him, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. He couldn't have had some sense or some insight into where this thing was going that the promise made to Abraham some 2,000 years earlier was being fulfilled in this thing going to the Gentiles. All the families of the earth will be blessed. There were hints, there were shadows, there were illusions, there were glimpses ever since God's promise to Abraham all through the story of the Old Testament leading to the moment where Paul is saying, the time where Paul along with the other apostles and prophets are saying, okay, here's the mystery. And the mystery that's been unclear for the ages is that this gospel is going to the Gentiles also. That's what Paul is talking about right here. Here in the next verse, he explains the mystery that the Gentiles, in verse 6, this mystery is that the Gentiles are three things. Fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I used to study the New American Standard for years. I like the New American Standard. It does some things that I appreciate. It breaks down verses, verse by verse. And what the New American Standard does with this passage, verse 6, it says three things. Fellow heirs. The mystery is that the Gentiles have been made fellow heirs with Jews. The second is that you've been made fellow members with the Jews. And the third, you've been made fellow partakers the Greek synonym that goes or not uh, the, the Greek prefix that goes along with all three of those words is the Greek prefix sin which means together with now since we're in Ephesians let's just look across the page I don't know how your your Ephesians is laid out but if you need to turn a page before you can to Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 and 6 hang with me here this is just so cool So cool. Ephesians 2 5 and 6. You know, this is the passage that's dealing with verses 1 through 6, excuse me, 1 through 10, dealing with this horizontal uh, reconciliation between God and man. And I already named three things for you. And those three things are these verse 5 and 6. He made us alive together with Christ. If you remember from when we were back there, Paul made up three words. He coined three words, three Greek words. He's the first person to use these three words. Made alive together with Christ is the first one. He raised us up with him is the second one. And the third, he seated us together with him. Three togethers. In Greek, those three togethers use the prefix son, which means the same thing as sin, together with. Now here's the cool thing I want you to see, is that Paul here is saying in chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, that these three things are the first part of the good news. You've been made alive together with Christ. You've been raised together with Christ. And third, you've been seated together with Christ. And the second half of that good news is three more togethers. You've been made co-heirs with, or what are they? You know, fellow heirs with Jewish Christians. One, together with. Two, you've been made fellow members, that word means concorporate, of the same body with the Jews. And you've been made third, fellow partakers, accomplices, this is what that word means. You've been made partners with the Jewish Christians. The first part of the gospel is being united together with Christ, made alive together with him, raised with him, seated with him. The second part of the gospel is that you've been made fellow heirs, you've been made fellow members, and you've been made fellow partakers. Man, we suspected that this was the second part of the gospel, and these beautiful six things tell us it's all there. The first three are vertical. The next three are these horizontal beauties that we're walking in, whether you realize it or not. This is from one of my favorite commentators, John Stott. He says, The mystery of Christ is the complete union of Jews and Gentiles with each other through the union of both with Christ. It is this double union with Christ and with each other which is the substance of the mystery and the substance we can introduce too of the grace that Paul is stewarding. Remember those words are used interchangeably. Have you ever thought about grace that way? Being the reconciliation of Jew and Gentile and what that might mean for you? It may not be beautiful for you yet. I want to show you a beautiful progression in Matthew. Turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. I have a handful of passages for you to turn to today. There are four in Matthew. There's one in Acts. Acts chapter 22, if you want to put a little marker there, I want you to keep Ephesians handy as well. And then the fifth, I guess that would be, the sixth would be 2 Corinthians 11 later on in the, in the morning. But look at this beautiful development. I realize as you're sitting here that this may not be beautiful for you yet. I'm kind of trying to imagine being sitting in the seat there with you and feeling like, okay, this guy's pretty passionate about this. I want to stick with him, but it, you know, I'm just being really honest, it's not beautiful for me yet. Okay, I'm reading your minds. It's okay. It's okay because I am you. Okay, so if I'm standing up here, Matthew chapter ten, let me show you a beautiful progression of this thing going to the Gentiles. Matthew, which is definitely the most Jewish gospel in our New Testament. Okay, it is written explicitly, not well, not I shouldn't say explicitly, especially for Jews. Listen how this thing goes down. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 5. These 12 Jesus sent out. These are the 12 disciples. Their names are mentioned in the verses before. Instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, I'm going to read it again because I want you to really take it in that somebody's being excluded here. And I want you to notice who they are. Jesus sends out the 12 instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Okay, the Gentiles are being excluded right there. Don't go to those Gentiles. I can't imagine that some of those 12 weren't thinking, yeah, whoo, whew, whew. I'm glad I don't have to go to those nasty rascals. Let's turn over a few pages to Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, verse 21. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Okay, a Canaanite woman is a Gentile. Okay, she's one of the ites that we've talked about for ages. You know, all those ites, Amorites, you know, uh, uh, Perizzites, Parasites, you know, all those ites. They're not Jews. This Gentile woman came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. You can almost hear, Get this nasty Gentile woman off our case. Please. Okay, here's what happens next. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Anybody ever read that passage and gone, huh, what's going on right there? Let it hit you. He sends out the disciples, go only to the house of Israel. Don't go to any Gentiles. Here a Gentile woman comes to him, a Canaanite woman. And he says those words again. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered her, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. (laughs) Wow, he just called her a dog. Let that hit you for a minute. Jesus said that. Let it hit hit you for a minute. He's talking about Gentiles, which are, are us. Don't go to any of those Gentiles. And oh, by the way, the bread is for the children, not for the dogs. I love how she responded. And apparently Jesus loved how she responded too. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, "O oh, woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. I love how it ends. But take in the fact that Jesus said, No. I came for Israel, for the children of Israel, and the bread is for them, it's not for the dogs. Thankfully, the gospel doesn't end right there. Let's look over a few more chapters to chapter 22. I told you it's going to be a beautiful progression. I want you to see this as beautiful. I really want you to see this as beautiful. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 1, a parable. Jesus taught a lot through parables. This is one that teaches a lot about what we just read. Listen to what he says. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers. And burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. He's been speaking about the Jews. This parable is the nature of the kingdom and what's gone on in this story for 2,000 years since Abraham had been making this promise. And the Jews mishandled this invitation to the wedding feast. So look what he says next. The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. This parable is explaining what we've read so far. It's explaining why early on Jesus is saying, don't go to Israel or don't go to the Gentiles. Go only to my children. You're a dog. This isn't for you. It's for the children. It's explaining those were speaking of an invitation that's going to the servants or the, to people that were invited in the first place. But then this parable is a shift in the story that explains the last part. Of Matthew In verse 20, in chapter 28, Jesus, his last words that he says to the disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. In so many words, he's saying go out into the main roads and, and invite to the wedding feast everybody you see, all the nations. Because this thing went to my invited guests in the first place and they didn't receive it. So go invite the nations. Man, it's a beautiful, beautiful story that this thing has gone to us. And it's a shocking story. Turn to Acts chapter 22. I want to show you the shock of it. I'm going to ask you to indulge me for a minute. This is the longest passage of Scripture I'm going to read this morning. Uh, This first part of the sermon is the most cumbersome and clunky and challenging Things get smooth after this, so hang in here for this reading. I really want you to see the beauty of this. Acts chapter 22. I'm going to give you some context and start in verse 37, but I'm going to read a good section of scripture here, not the entire chapter, but I'm going to read something that's going to surprise you, and I want it to surprise you. I want it to hit you. Verse 37 of the previous chapter for context. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men in the, and of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. Paul is asking for permission to speak to the crowd. He's in Jerusalem. He's just been arrested. He's asking for permission. Now let's see what, what unfolds. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. I don't know what he did. Hark. <laughs> I don't know what he did, but it had been kind of cool to see it. Motions with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush. Let that hit you a great hush he addressed them in the hebrew language saying brothers and fathers hear the defense that i now make before you and when they had heard that he was addressing them in the hebrew language they became even more quiet you could have heard a pin drop just imagine there's a great hush that apparently even got quieter when they found that he's speaking in hebrew so paul starts speaking he starts telling this story. Listen to what it, how this thing goes down. And just because just it's such a cool moment, let's just read it and enjoy it. Imagine being there and hearing the silence. And Paul has his hand raised. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel. In other words, he went to the Harvard of Judaism. Okay. According to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death. He's speaking of the church. Binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, the hush, quiet. Everybody's quiet listening, still listening. Paul keeps talking. As I was on my way, I drew near to Damascus about noon. A great uh, light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Okay, there's still a hush. He just mentioned Jesus' name, who was crucified right there in Jerusalem. And there's still a hush. So listen, let it just take it in. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise, go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that's appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came to Damascus. Still quiet. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, "Brother Saul, receive your sight." And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. He's just explained this miracle too. He mentioned Jesus' name. He just told a miracle, and it's still really quiet. There's a hush. Could have heard a pin drop. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know His will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from His mouth. For you will be a witness for Him to everyone of all you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on His name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance, and I saw Him saying to me, Make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. They still are quiet, still listening. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. It's still quiet and still a hush. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And the people... Come on Watch what happens. Up to this word, they listened to him with a hush. You could have heard a pin drop. Up to this word, it was just so quiet, quiet as a mouse. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then though, when he said, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Let's kill this joker with even the notion that this thing is going to the Gentiles. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, flinging dust in the air, they are throwing an absolute tantrum. The tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging To find out why they were shouting against him like this. The reason they were shouting against him like this is because the notion of this thing, this good news, this relationship with Yahweh and his promise to his people going to the Gentiles was unthinkable. We don't have a clue of that, though, here 2,000 years later. Is it beautiful to us? It's supposed to be. We're not supposed to be in on this thing. I mean, we are. But at least the way the story unfolds, if we're going to think like a Jew, we're like, let's kill this guy. That ain't supposed to be. But remember, it was Jesus' plan. I'm going to show you what Israel did when they weren't a city on a hill. I was talking with Greg Fields yesterday, and he he reminded me of a, or he told me about a quote from N.T. Wright, that, that, that Israel was supposed to be a city on a hill, a beacon to the world. But instead, they were a house of mirrors. Look at us, look at us, look at us, look at us. Look at what we have. It's all for us, it's all for us, all for us. And Jesus, in those first two encounters with the Canaanite woman, in go only to the, the house of Israel, don't go to the Gentiles, he's showing Israel, this is what you did. But let me, let me tell, tell you a parable. To help you see what I'm going to do. Because I'm going to send you to the nations. Because this is for the world. I made a promise to Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And that's what I'm going to do. And that's what Christ accomplished. It needs to be beautiful to you. We're not supposed to be in on this story. We're not supposed to be in on the receiving end of the blessing. It is a surprising mystery that he's included us in on this plan. It should bless you on Tuesday when you're driving to work, when it just pops into your head. It should bless you when you're shaving in the morning or for ladies, fixing your hair. It should bless you when you're troubled, thinking, man, I got nothing to be thankful for. It should bless you in those moments going, yes, you do. You're a Gentile included in on, on the plan for God, of God, for his people. It should hit you, and you should be surprised by it. You should be blessed by it. It is a surprise grace. Let's go back to Ephesians. We're going to move quicker now for the rest of this passage. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, God's stewards, surprise stewards. Beginning in verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. through our faith in Him. Remember in verse 2 that Paul introduced this notion of being a steward of God's grace. That use of grace there was the first definition. God's unmerited, remember how it was defined, His unmerited and undeserved favor in provision of salvation for sinners through Christ's sacrificial death. This is the second use right here. God's unmerited and undeserved favor enabling, in in the enabling power for the believer in performing the tasks that God gives him. That's how Paul is using grace here for this section 7 through 11. It's God's unmerited favor in completing the task. And the task that he has been stewarded, stewarded is the gospel, the surprise gospel to the Gentiles of being included with the Jews now, there are two different stewards in this passage. Paul's the first steward, and he's the obvious one. You can read what he thinks about himself in verse eight, "To me, though I am very the least of all I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul, that word there, the least of all the saints, could be translated directly. We'd have to make up a word, the leaster of the saints." I like that. He's the leaster of the saints is the way he sees himself. He he has serious humility, this guy Paul. He is accomplished. I just mentioned he went to Harvard. Harvard of Judaism. He's a Jew among Jews, a Pharisee. But he has some serious humility as the leaster of all the saints. And there are three reasons. There are two for sure and a third that I'm suspicious of. The first is he had a super low view of himself and his worthiness to be saved. He tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. The first reason, apparently, that he really has a view of this, his unworthiness, is because he doesn't believe that he's worthy of being saved. The second reason is because he persecuted the church. That's why he's thinking, man, I am unworthy to be saved. I'm the leaster of all the saints. And the third that I'm suspecting that we don't talk about very much, but if you really start thinking about it, you got to figure out that's kind of cool. Maybe because he's the least suited for ministry to the Gentiles. I want you to think about this for a minute. You couldn't have found anyone More poorly suited to go to the Gentiles than Paul. He didn't look like them. He didn't dress like them. He didn't talk like them. He didn't have a background of being a Gentile and was somehow converted to Judaism and then went off to Harvard of Judaism School. This guy was a Jew among Jews. He didn't look like them. He didn't talk like them. He couldn't identify with the Gentiles. He was in every respect foreign to the life and thought of Gentiles, yet it's this guy that God sends as a steward of grace to the Gentiles. I want that to hit you for a moment. It would be like God sending R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer. No, let let me give you this illustration first. In, in regards to his persecuting the church, it would be like a converted Hitler preaching to the Jews. Unlikely. That, that's not a good plan. All right, in seminary, when they're talking church planting, that would have been like, hey, that's not a good plan, Hitler. <laughs> Let's think about some other place you might go to. Maybe like an a, a, a Aryan neighborhood or something. Because they can identify with you and you can identify with them. But not to the Jews. You killed them. That's a bad plan, Hitler. You're going to have to go with a different one. Okay, here's another illustration. It would be like R.C. Sproul or J.I. Packer going to be a missionary to the gangs in L.A. I mean, they got the colors, you know, blood. I don't know, the bloods, you know, they got... Obviously, I'm not really tuned into that. They got the bandanas on, you know, uh. they got all those signs, you know, that all those things that they do, you know, and Paul doesn't know any of those things. R.C. Sproul doesn't, probably doesn't know any of those things. J.I. Packer's wearing his nice suit, you know, English accent, his tweed, hey, I tell you about Jesus. Church planner class, they're saying, J.I., that's a bad plan, buddy. Let's go send you to England to go to maybe the neighborhoods of the upper class we're not going to send you to LA to the gangs you're crazy but that's what God did with Paul he sent him to the least likely people the least I would say qualified person in terms of his background but God has a habit of doing that he has a habit of taking the foolish things that confound the wise It's surprising how he works, things like that. He's the leaster, and he's sent to the Gentiles. And what sends him is the authority of the call. His humility conditioned his authority as a called-out saint. And it's the power of God that sees it through. Not man's designs, not man's plans. It's the power of God that sees it through. Paul rested on that. That's what drove him. That's what compelled him. Now, the reality is we're not apostles and we're not, um, we can't identify with a lot of what Paul has gone through, but we're pastors, some of us. We're deacons, a lot of us. We're life group shepherds, some of you. Some of you are teachers. Lots of you are fathers. Lots of you are mothers and the reality is we should serve not out of our own aptitude because you may not have any if you're really honest. You may not be well suited or well fitted it seems for those tasks, but you serve out of his authority in calling you to it and his power in seeing it through and the practice that he has of taking the foolish things that confound the wise. It's not lost on me as I am standing here preaching this morning and preaching that point that from about 7th grade through 11th and 12th, I went to speech therapy every single week. And it wasn't for a lisp. It was for stuttering. I I couldn't get out a sentence. I was that guy in class that couldn't answer a question. I remember an exercise that my speech therapist took me through. Her name was Miss Collie. I got to know her well because I saw her every single week for about four or five years. She had me call a tire store like Willingham's and I had to ask the hours and he picks up the phone. Bill's tire and lube, I don't know what it was, you know. Hello? Hello? (laughs) I couldn't even say hello. I couldn't even ask him what are your hours I couldn't get a sentence out the irony of what God calls people to is not lost on me what am I doing when I was a kid I remember sitting in a pew we had a church with pews thinking to myself I I, I, I think I'm supposed to do that now granted you don't think in stuttering but just I'm making the point you stutterers don't think that way just so you know like, uh. I think I'm supposed to do that he's, he's ironic we should have a sense of humor about being called to this thing every steward in this room can, you're all stewards whether you realize it or not you may not be stewarding the grace that's been given you but you're supposed to be and you should have a good sense of humor about it the irony we should enjoy it together now, there's a second steward in this passage, and it's in verse 10. The second steward in this passage is also kind of surprising who, it's being, who is stewarding it to, or who the audience is in stewarding. Look at verse 10. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. I've read that passage a million times. I've, I've taught through Ephesians before, and I've never really connected to that passage of what actually is being said there. Listen to this passage in 1 Peter chapter 1. It was revealed to them, this is the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is just so weird. When I talk about it staff meeting, the whole staff is looking at me like, that's the weirdest thing I've ever heard. Let me acquaint you with what's actually being said here. This passage is saying, look at it at verse 10 again. Where is verse 10? Through the church, the manifold wisdom, manifold means multicolored, the multicolored wisdom of God might now, now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places that's not figuratively that's really whenever we were singing over there I was standing over there when we were singing this morning and I was thinking man there's people that are worshipping this morning or not? I can't say people there are beings there's an audience that's worshipping with us this morning that we can't see Rulers and authorities in heavenly places that are looking at us and listening to our message and going, God, you are multicolored wise. And bringing together Jew and Gentile and bringing together Ben and Christy McGraw who had war for years of our marriage and making us really enjoy one another. And I look at her and I feel like I'm looking at myself, part of me. There are rulers and authorities going, God, you are multicolored wise in bringing together the least likely people that could be one, in Jew and Gentile, in Ben Knucklehead, hard to live with, McGraw and Christie, the easiest person in the world to live with. And bringing together Hatfields and McCoys. I mean, think of the examples that we could use. I don't know the Hatfields and McCoys are reconciled, but if they're in Christ, they can be. That's the crazy good news that we walk in. Man, I want to enjoy that we have an audience that we can't see. Listen to this quote from one of my commentators named Edie. Angels, these principles and authorities, have seen much of God's working. Many a sun lighted up. Many a world launched into orbit. They've been delighted with the solution of many a problem and the development of many a mystery. But in the proclamation of the gospel to the Gentiles, the incarnation, the atonement, the manger and the cross, these principalities and these powers in heavenly places beheld with rapture other and brighter phases of wisdom which had often dazzled them by its brilliant and profuse versatility. The special and surprising instrument of instruction of these heavenly beings is the church? (laughs) we gotta have a sense of humor about that but a sense of wonder and marvel a sense of wonder and marvel here's what angels are seeing in the church here's what these angelic beings are seeing and hearing in the church the church is in the process of gathering up and uniting as one Formerly hostile sections of mankind. That's what the gospel accomplishes. And it's proof that God is gathering up all creation in Christ. The church is the visible materialization of God's plan and purpose for the universe. Angelic beings behold this with wonder. And they, through the church, gain insight into the manifold... Multicolored wisdom of God. Man, I hope you enjoy that. It's just shocking to consider that God could have turned to these angelic beings and said, Let me explain and show you my multicolored manifold wisdom, but he didn't do that. Instead, he said, Watch the church, listen to the church, watch what I'm doing in the church. And then you'll see my wisdom. Then you'll see my multicolored wisdom. My manifold wisdom. So every time an unlikely pair is reconciled, every single time, brother and brother, brother and sister, sister and sister are reconciled, even if they have micro differences, angels marvel at the wisdom of God. God uses surprise stewards, doesn't he? Surprise stewards, Paul and the rest of us, individually and as the church. And the last point is from verse 13. It's an easy one. Verse 13 of chapter 3 in Ephesians. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. The last place I'm going to have you turn this morning is 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians 11. I want you to see what Paul is talking about here. I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is speaking about real suffering here. He's chained to a Roman guard. The word there for suffering is, is, is translated in some places tribulation. But it's also, if you want to tr- translate it directly, it means Pressure which is a great word. Listen to Paul's catalog of suffering in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I'm beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. The night and the day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure. That's quite a list. Seriously. Listen to what he adds to the list. The last thing he mentions. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That made his suffering list because that daily pressure is something you will experience if, first of all, you recognize that you're a surprise steward and that what you're stewarding is a surprise story and a surprise grace, something that you don't deserve, something that your hearers don't deserve. I make you this promise. You will experience pressure. You need to be prepared for. It. I read a uh, story recently. I tried to find the story, but I, I couldn't find it. It was a, la- a couple of months ago. I was reading about um, cycling races, trying to, um, I don't know, I just bumped into the, the story and it was dealing with the suffering that you experience in a race, which is extreme depending on the race. But if you're racing to win, you're going to suffer. Everybody is suffering. You don't see people smiling in bike races. Okay? And I'm reading this story of this, this um, collegiate uh, runner, this gal, that was winning all the events across the country. She was expected to be the national champion. She's a senior. She's in her prime. She's running. I mean, just owning these races. She goes into the national, national championship, And she's the favorite, expected to win, and she gets like 10th. I mean, everybody's like, what happened? She must have been sick. Well, they interviewed this gal afterwards and asked her, how did that happen? How did you end up 10th? And she said, I didn't expect it to be hard. I listened to what everybody was saying about me, that this thing is cinched, that it's going to be easy. So I wasn't prepared for the difficulty. It wasn't any faster than any of those races she had been in before. But her mind wasn't ready for it. She wasn't steeled for it. She wasn't galvanized for it. She wasn't ready for it. And let me make you this promise. If you're not ready for pressure in stewarding the grace of God and the gospel and the mystery, you're not going to run the race well either. You you may not run it at all. You may sit the bench because somebody told you a lie that following Christ was going to be easy. That faith was going to be easy which is a lie. You will experience pushback when you push a darkness. It pushes back. Just like the angelic beings are listening in on what's happening between Jew and Gentile, guess who else is listening in? That passage in verse 10 didn't just say the angelic beings are listening in. It's all rulers and authorities. I'm not a big hocus-pocus demon guy. But I guarantee they exist, and I guarantee they're listening in. And they would like nothing more than to push back on that stewardship of grace that we're all supposed to have. And that's what they do. Pressure. Relentless pressure. You try and shepherd your family in faith, you will experience pressure. You try and walk in holiness, you will experience relentless Pressure. You try and love your wife as Christ loved the church, the wind won't be to your back. You will experience pressure. You try and submit to that knucklehead, wives, as the the church is supposed to submit to Christ, you will experience pressure. Be prepared for it. Be ready for it. Be galvanized for it. Three things I hope you got this morning. First of all, enjoying his surprise grace. His unmerited and his undeserved favor extended to you, a bunch of Gentiles, through Christ. Be surprised. Secondly, if you feel ill-suited to steward the grace of God to your family and friends and others, You're in good company. Embrace that. Welcome to the club. And marvel with me that unseen rulers and principalities and authorities are witness to our stewardship of the surprise grace. And third, expect suffering. If you expect it, you'll be ready for it. And you'll be able to go the distance. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful for our time together this morning. I hope it wasn't too much for people to digest. I hope that together that this people has enjoyed um, this marvel. This crazy reality that a room full of Gentiles right now is enjoying you through Christ. I'm so glad that this has been extended to the dogs And we got more than scraps from the table. We've been invited to sit with your people and have become your adopted people. That is some seriously good news. I pray that joy, that marvel, will invade a Tuesday for someone this week. I pray it will invade a discouraging season, maybe in a marriage, where a man and woman can have a renewed hope that you are a redemptive God and you are about reconciling Cain and Abel. God, I'm so thankful that we together as a people can walk as one. It's good news. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I'm going to read two passages for our supper this morning. One from... 1 Corinthians 11, you're welcome to listen in or or turn there or you can listen in. It's a familiar passage. It's one that I went to last week, in fact. But I'm going to read another passage first that I haven't read in some time, and I'm going to read it in the same sitting as our meal. Listen to this passage from Exodus chapter 12, dealing with the institution of the Passover, which is what the Lord's Supper is. It's a Passover meal and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron this is the statute of the Passover no foreigner shall eat of it no foreigner shall eat of it but every slave that's bought for money may eat of it after you've circumcised him no foreigner or hired worker may eat of it then to a church full of foreigners Paul says for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you a bunch of foreigners that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's distribute the elements. Some friends years back invited us to dinner at Three Forks. And it was on them. I'd never been to three forks. I didn't even know anything about three forks. But I did my research beforehand. I'm like, three forks is, we need three forks. It's going to be good. Right? And I remember sitting there. It was one of the funniest, <laughs> funniest moments. I'm sitting there at that table, and we're having some appetizers and stuff. And, and I said, man, we are eating with the halves tonight. Now, I totally embarrassed them because they're like, oh, we're not halves. We're not halves. You know, that, like, yeah, you guys are halves. I didn't say that, but I, I said, oh, I didn't mean y'all. I meant we're eating halves food tonight. We're eating with the folks that have some means. That's the way we ought to be taking the supper this morning. We ain't supposed to be eating here. <laughs> we're the foreigners. No foreigner shall eat of the Passover. Did you hear it? But in Christ, for those who are in Christ, eat up. Take and eat in faith. Let's enjoy eating with him and let's drink. Let's continue in song.